Hello, this is Hope, and you're listening to Covert Castaway. Welcome to my weekly diary of what I learn and how I cope with transitioning to life as a liveaboard cruiser. Decisions, decisions, and so many things to consider. Commissioning and deciding about options when buying a new sailboat is not a straightforward process, and neither is getting answers to what we set out thinking were pretty easy questions. In fact, it proved to be just about as elusive as trying to photograph a unicorn. In today's podcast, I'll outline our experience with outfitting and commissioning and what we are learning through the process. So when we first started this endeavor to buy a boat, I figured, okay, you pick the model you want and the configuration, add a few bells and whistles, and you're off to the races. That's how it works, right? Uh, no. This is honestly the most bizarre buying process I've ever been through in my life. As I mentioned before, we had to get into the queue to buy a new boat two years in advance that would get built at some future point in time that you could only roughly estimate committing to buying a boat that we had never sailed for a price that was still yet to be determined because this would change two more times between when we put the Tabasa down and 12 months after that. Who does that? Apparently everyone who buys a new boat. It's crazy. But here's the real kicker. You're given the base boat, which is basically made up of everything that makes it float. Everything else you choose and you buy separately as an option. It's more like building a custom home. You pick from one of the four models and then every other decision you have to decide separately. Because I've never lived on a boat, when I first saw the options list, half the stuff I didn't even know what it was or why it mattered. Also, there's different opinions about certain things and decisions on those things that affect other decisions that you have to make. It's like this weird intergalactic butterfly effect. I'll give you this simple example. How does the decision on a freshwater electric head affect a decision you make on how you dry your clothes? Let's start with the heads. The theory is seawater stinks. So if you get freshwater, that's better because nobody likes a stinky head. And electric, of course, is better because you push the button versus pumping the thing when you are probably bouncing all around in rough seas. Okay, that means you need to consider a water maker. So how big a water maker do you need to account for the water you use for everything else, including the freshwater heads? So now you have to think about all your water consumption. So how big a water maker do you need overall? Okay, so everyone knows that seawater heads are super stinky, but having a seawater option is good because you also can use less fresh water, say if you're going on a passage, that you would otherwise get from your water maker. Okay, so do we go all fresh water or have some heads that are seawater Or do we have them build in a conversion kit so we can have both on the heads? Well, why does this matter? Because the size of your water maker means you have to consider how much power you need to operate your water maker on top of the rest of your power requirements. So now you need to figure out all the power requirements you need because you need to determine how many batteries you need or how much solar you need or whether you need other power sources like a hydro generator or wind generator. Then you have a debate with your spouse about just running the generator to charge the batteries, right? But what if you're in a super remote place and don't want to use a lot of diesel fuel for your motors and powering the generator 
just for the water maker isn't great because you need to load up the generator. So how big of a generator do you need? Well, it depends. Will you be running a rice cooker, a washing machine, a hairdryer, while also having the generator on? And are you getting a washer-dryer combo or just the washer and then you'll hang your clothes? Well, won't things kind of get moldy? Yeah, so we should get the dryer option, right? Okay, which model should we get and will it fit? This is just one simple example of every single decision you have to make on the options of a boat. For our boat option list, just from the factory, there were 400 line items, give or take. I won't read the full list, but if anybody wants it, just send me a message on Facebook and I'll do a quick read through of all the options and all the drama in a separate recording. Of all those 400 decisions, about 100 decisions are super simple to make. Yes, of course, we want the lazy jack and the cockpit courtesy lighting. But here are decisions that have required the most amount of research that have impacted other major decisions. Water requirements and the water maker system. I started to talk about this. Water is life, of course, and even though you're on a boat surrounded by water, the irony is your water maker system is crucial, and it's crucial to making your life easy or hard. Freshwater is always something to be monitored and considered, but for us, it wasn't something I wanted to obsess about and spend my time rationing. It's too stressful on top of everything else. I know, so people will roll their eyes and say water rationing is part of liveaboard life. I understand. Yes, it is. And even with a water maker, it's definitely always a thing to monitor. But for us, I wanted to spend time worrying about things that are outside my control, not inside my control. So having a big water maker is a big deal. And I like showers, so there's that. 110 volt or 220 volt system. Depending where you want to travel and you expect to hook up, this could be a big decision. We don't intend to bring the boat back to the States, so what electrical system would be most helpful based on where we wanted to go, so that just took some time to get through. All the intricacies of your power system based on your estimated power requirements. AGM or lithium? How much solar? Whether or not you want AC, which affects your decision on the generator. This whole topic's a hot mess, and we're still working through it. The challenge on this one is that we're in this weird in-between time when lithium isn't quite ready for prime time, and there's still a bunch of risk on this decision. The decision on preferring lithium itself can be a bit of a religious debate, but that's not the core issue. Let's assume you believe in lithium, and also believe it's safe to put lithium batteries on your boat. That's just the beginning. You need to think about the whole power system when making this decision. You buy lithium, you need certain battery controllers and just the right electrical system. You want to put them in a cool area of the boat, not the engine rooms, where the factory drops the wiring for the existing AGM batteries. So a new destination for your batteries needs to be decided, and the boat needs to be rewired with the right electrical wires to match the load capacity and all the other needs for the boat. And all this needs to be checked and rechecked so you don't have issues with mixing wire systems that control the rest of the boat. And nothing scares me more on a boat is the idea of having an electrical fire with lithium on board. Especially as I record this, just a few weeks ago, we had a terrible boat fire off the coast of California that killed 34 people. I feel like if the manufacturer thought lithium was ready for prime time, it would come as a factory option with all the proper wiring and location pre-installed in the first place versus getting it as a commissioning option done by a network of third parties after the fact. Retrofitting the boat for it requires a higher risk tolerance than what we currently are ready to take on. Other people may be different, so that's just us. 
Okay, generator versus no generator. I know. Why would you buy a boat like this and not have a generator? I don't know. Ask my husband. I don't get it either. He wants to be fully sustainable, so he's obsessed with finding a way not to have one. He had this idea that if we had lithium and the right solar, we wouldn't need a generator, which in theory makes sense, unless you really want a boat with air conditioning. He doesn't think we need that either, which is a total contradiction to his I'm all about the science life philosophy, since he also at the same time believes in climate change. I'm easy. I'm a fan of AC. Not because I'm a princess, but because sometimes my standard equipment runs hot, especially at night. There's no way he's touching me with a 10-foot pole at night when it's 90 degrees inside the boat. End of story. Hold treatment and anti-fouling. It's becoming regular dinner conversation. Our daughter just shakes her head. But this decision could be the difference between heaven and purgatory. Because once you're on the boat in the water, it's not like it's an easy do-over. Copper is supposed to be awesome. But it's bad for the oceans, and apparently no one on planet Earth knows how to apply it properly. In any way that's repeatable, that is. There's anti-fouling vinyl wrap. That's not proven either. And honestly, beware about researching it. It's easy to get distracted and start daydreaming about getting a full whole wrap with some exotic design on it. Moving on. All of the other decisions are intricate. They're nuanced choices that definitely do make life easier or harder. But we're sailing, so it's still like camping. They aren't game-changing decisions that can't be made or adjusted along the way. Like, what kind of props? What's your Wi-Fi setup or what kind of barbecue? So the entire point of sharing all this with you is to say the commissioning is not a simple thing. Like the boat comes out, then it goes to a commissioning agent who adds a few handrails and sets up your mattresses. The commissioning process actually starts a year before the fiberglass goes into the factory. Because all these decisions need to be thought through and submitted as the final manufacturer's options list. And then the ex-factory commissioning is the stuff the manufacturer doesn't want to do, or maybe you don't like the way they have it done. So enter from stage left, the commissioning agent. Here's the kind of stuff they do. They provide the cockpit tents and enclosures, extra inverters or battery monitors, fire suppression system, bigger fans throughout the inside, flooring, maybe like Flexteak, chain counter, how about a water filter for drinking water? Because a water maker fills your boat tanks, which also collects bacteria. So do we want UV or just the carbon filter? There's also changes to stuff that maybe you got from the manufacturer that you don't exactly like perfectly. So say you selected the Hi-Fi pack and you get standard from the manufacturer. It includes all the wiring and the bow system. But for the TV, which you never really wanted in the first place, it's a pathetic 24 inch. So we ask ourselves, if we have it wired for TV, do we want a bigger monitor? You know, for rainy days, watching movies. Okay, sure. So what do we do with the 24-inch? Well, we put it in the owner's cabin. Well, why would we do that? Well, if someone's sick in bed, you know. Now we never really wanted a TV on a boat, and now we have two. Dive compressor. Outside fridge. Ice maker. Sure, why not? Throw it in there, too. And this is why buying a boat is like building a house. It takes longer than expected and costs twice as much as you budgeted for. It goes on and on. And we've definitely filled two years of waiting with all this research and reconnaissance on systems and equipment. The other thing that really surprised me about all this is the brokers are helpful to a point, but it's all really loose. They send you a list of options. It says 12-volt outlet. Okay, I probably need that, but doesn't it come with outlets already? Yes, but, you know, as updates change every year, right now there's one in each cabin and one in the salon, so you don't need it. But what if my husband and I both want to charge our phones at night? 
Should we add another to the master, maybe? Curtains and cabins. All right, what do those look like? Is it sunshades on windows? Is it full curtains? Is it inside, outside? And if it's outside, does the salt scratch the windows? Oh no, that's different. That's a Texaline shade. Okay, so would I still need the curtains or do I need curtains for privacy? The problem is you don't know what you don't know. And the broker and commissioning agent just want you to tell them what you want. They don't really want to spend the time explaining what everything is and what you do or don't really need. It's sort of like having to build a house without an architect. There's things we just don't know enough to ask, at least in the beginning. Okay, so this concludes all the decisions part of this story. So let's move on to who does what throughout the commissioning process. For context, we do live in the West Coast, but we want to cast off from France and start in the Med. So considering all the delivery options and based on our plans, we're leaning towards taking delivery in France. Our broker is based out of Maryland and they will be managing and planning the operations for our boat, working with the local teams on the ground and the commissioning agent, who is also the primary agent for the broker, who ultimately also acts as both an extension of the manufacturing team for the X-Factory assembly of certain things that come out, and they act like the local representative of our broker when they aren't on the ground in France. I know this is really confusing, but you guessed it. This sets up a perfect situation for miscommunication and finger-pointing when something goes wrong. You couple that with a very old-school paper and post-it note manufacturing and supply chain system, and you can start to understand the potential problems. Like I said before, I've never seen anything like it, and it's an industry ripe for modernization, but with a culture that's slow to change. It's honestly bizarre. Let me use a hypothetical example to make my point. So you want underwater lights, but you don't want the ones that come with the boat. You want the cool-looking blue ones. You buy them from the broker, who actually is having them done by the commissioning agent. The guys from the commissioning agent team drill the holes in the wrong spot, so they cover them up and drill new holes and install the lights. You find out later, when you're on the boat, that four extra holes were drilled into the bottom of your boat, and the gel coat work is sloppy and cracking. Whose problem is it? In theory, it's the broker's problem to fix, but the broker didn't know anything about it. The commissioning agent has no recollection, and the actual guy who did the work left to work at a new boatyard months ago. This is just a hypothetical example, but this kind of stuff happens all the time. It's also good to appreciate the dynamics of markups. The broker marks up the boat and all the manufacturing options. Okay, fine. That's to be expected. But then they mark up the aftermarket items for any other third parties. Okay. And on top of that, they make their third parties pay a commission fee to them for the honor of getting the business, which basically incentivizes third parties to mark up their costs more and cut corners that may not be in your best interests. I'm not trying to be negative here or complain. I'm just sharing how this is in case anyone else needs to know the information. Beyond that, here's some other tactical lessons we're learning. We'll try to get as much installed from the factory as possible, and not only weigh the trade-offs of custom options, but the probability of it causing unintended consequences. We'll properly plan for and anticipate what a custom request will fully entail and work with our broker early to plan for process changes and local lead times, assuming nothing and documenting everything. While we're working with our broker, and they're ultimately responsible for a positive outcome, it's our burden to appreciate the cultural differences of planning and adjusting our expectations and style accordingly when we are in the ground in a foreign country. Resetting our expectations about the time it takes to commission and ready the boat. Hard deadlines will create more stress. 
which for us is what we're trying to have less of by changing our lifestyle. It's probably good to plan to stay out of the way. It would be like living through a kitchen remodel, so I think it would be best just not to expect to move straight on the boat while it's being commissioned. A couple quick minutes here on chandlery and provisioning. In any port, you could no doubt find everything you need to provision the boat with the help of a rental van. In local stores and chandleries in the boatyard, you can find anything from rubber bottom dishes, linens, folding bags, appliances, line, weather gear, repair equipment, charts, gangways, etc. Probably the most important things are having spares, oil filters, impellers, belts, and so on. You can get all that there. A person could probably walk off the plane and get everything they need to cast off. Extra gear we're still trying to figure out. What else could there possibly be, you ask? The list is endless, and I'm overwhelmed, so honestly, I think we're just getting things as we go along. But the idea for some of this stuff is it might actually matter what kind you get. But the idea is for some of this stuff, you might actually matter what kind you get. So more research is probably required. Here's some examples. Handheld GPS, binoculars, bosun's chair, which won't give you a painful wedgie, sails, sat phone, scuba gear, water toys, EPIRB, tools, or wire cutters in case the mask comes down. Life raft, definitely want to research that. Other safety equipment, medical equipment, and you know, all these things are kind of personal and require research. Oh, and I almost forgot the dinghy, which I'll do a whole separate episode on. This is all a lot and can make your head explode. And honestly, people for years have been casting off with only a boat and a smile, and they've all done just fine. I want to reiterate the purpose of sharing all this information is so it's helpful to you and share what we're discovering through this journey. What I'm trying to say here is much like buying a used boat and fixing it up, buying a new boat is not all rainbows and frolicking dolphins. But here's what I'll say. We are lucky to be able to have these kinds of decisions to make. And we're lucky to face the frustrations that go along with them. These are first world problems, and I'm grateful for them. It means making important trade-offs on what we want and what we think is practical to get done with lower risk. It means resetting expectations. It calls out the importance of patience and rolling with things. It's preparation for the mindset we will need to live on a boat. And it's helping us with the transition, which is all part of the adventure, to make us resilient and prove that we must really, really want this kind of lifestyle. What about you? What are you learning in your own transition to the cruising lifestyle? Join the conversation on the Covert Castaway Facebook page. And you can also find me on Instagram. Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, please subscribe, like, or share with another covert castaway. Fair winds for now.